Thank you for this morning's worship, songs that have lifted up your name, revealed your glory and love to us, your righteousness and justice. Thank you, Lord, for Rob's testimony, the testimony of many people whose lives have been transformed by your saving grace, your power, your arm is not too shortened that it cannot save nor your ear too heavy that it cannot hear. But our sins have separated us from you. And the simple cry of faith in repentance brings us home. It is by the grace of God that we are saved, but it is by faith that we connect with the one who has died in our place and offers this life-transforming experience. For those who are here this morning who don't know you, touch their hearts and open their eyes and draw them to yourself. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law and see the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Mark Weiss is a pilot with a 20-year record, a veteran of commercial air aviation. And he said, it is not common, but it is not unheard of. He was referring to airplanes landing at the wrong airport. A few years ago, a Southwest flight from Chicago Midway Airport on its way to Branson, Missouri, with 124 passengers aboard, landed at the wrong airport. They were close. They touched down at a small airport just seven miles away, but it was a runway, had a runway about half the size of Branson. The pilot landed, put on the brakes, reversed jets, realized he was in trouble, and then began to burn rubber as he pushed as hard as he could to get those brakes to work. You could hear the fear, the rubber, smell the rubber in the cockpit. If he overshot the runway, he would tumble down a ravine uh, some 500 feet onto US Highway 65. But the plane stopped 500 feet before that ravine. Welcome to Branson, he said. And then a few minutes later, he came back over the loudspeaker. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, we have landed at the wrong airport. Now that might not, I mean, that probably is bad enough, but they had to sit two hours on the tarmac before stairs could be brought from Branson all the way over to this airport so they could deplane. Needless to say, the people were not too happy. The airline wrote a statement, we have reached out to each customer directly, directly. we've apologized, we're refunding the ticket money, and we're giving you credit for another flight, (laughs) like anyone wants to get back on that plane. (laughs) Mary Chavavo, former general inspector of the U.S. Department of Transportation, said that planes landing at the wrong airport aren't unusual. In fact, in a period of time between 10 to 12 years, there was at least 150 times where a plane landed or almost landed at the wrong airport. Just to encourage you the next time you fly. (laughs) 
How sad, how sad is it to have a destination and pay a price and trust someone to get there and then to land at the wrong place? Well, the gospel of Romans, the book of Romans, the gospel of God in the book of Romans, I should say, is the gospel of God's grace and it will not lead you astray. You can trust the word of God for you will land in the right place when Christ is your savior. And it won't cost you anything. It's simple repentance, as Dan saying this morning, and our commitment by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've started a study in the book of Romans calling it the gospel of God's grace. Now that theme is predominant in this wonderful book. And so I want you to open to chapter one. We've just begun, last week we looked at the first few verses and uh, they gave us some wonderful lofty theological insight into the character of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God promised beforehand by the prophets of old regarding the Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David, showing his humanity and raised from the dead in power to declare his deity. He is both son of David and son of God. And Paul said, this is the message I want to preach to you. It's the gospel of God regarding his son. But then Paul goes into a section that is autobiographical, uh, starting with verse 8 and going down through about verse 18. There's only one other section that is clearly autobiographical in the book of Romans, and we have to wait until chapter 15 to get there. But let's go back to verse 7, Romans chapter 1, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, his Lord, Jesus Christ our Lord. We kind of raced over that before, and I want to come back and just say a couple things. It's interesting in Paul's letters how he reveals his wonderful concern and love for the people. Now, you might think, if you were to gain some insight into Paul's personality and character, that he is a hard-driven man and uh, that he has a goal to accomplish and he will finish that task. And often, type A type of people can walk over others, but Paul doesn't seem to do that. He's not willing to surrender his apostolic authority and he won't shy away from the difficult decisions that that position forces him to make. But he has a great love and heart for people and gives to us a wonderful example of what a minister of God should be. Devoted to the truth, proclaiming the gospel with a deep love for people. And here he shows us his heart. He says, to all who are in Rome, loved of God. Never forget this. God so loved the world, but God's love for his own is deeper and special. He loves the world, but when people put their faith and trust in him, they become part of his family. 
and his love to them deepens. And you can read about it in Ephesians chapter 3, the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the great love of God in Christ. And then he gives what really is from the Old Testament, the ironic blessing from Numbers chapter 6. He mentions grace which is justification by faith. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. And then peace from that wonderful Hebrew uh, word shalom that means completeness. And of course, there is not only peace with God, but Paul's message here in this book is going to be peace with Jew and Gentile, the reconciliation of these two groups that had been against each other. In Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his face toward you and give you peace, grace and peace. Now it is interesting that as Paul talks to these Romans, he mentions the fact that they are called of God and they are beloved of God and they must live holy lives, they're saints of God, and he gives to them the Jewish blessing of grace and peace, all of that seems to point to the fact that Paul is mentioning that Gentiles and Jews are one in Christ. That the, broke, the, the middle wall, uh, the partition has been broken down, and Paul wants us to see that we're part of the covenant people of God. By his grace, that is, we Gentiles, because God has brought us into the family. Don't miss, at the end of verse 7, that grace and peace come to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is giving to us a theological point that he would die for the fact that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He mentioned it earlier, son of God with power by the resurrection. And putting these names together, jointly giving to us grace and peace, puts them on the same level. We'll see it again a little bit later on. Now, the apostle Paul deals with his love for these people that he hasn't seen in a way that emphasizes to us the heart of gospel relationships, not just pastor to people, which is very important and clearly seen, but from believer to believer, that there is to be a wonderful connectedness in Christ. So he mentions in verse 8, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. He warmly thanks God for them. There is a sense of appreciation and gratitude deep. And he thanks God for these people that he has never met. That's not always the, always the case with some preachers. They sometimes are not too eager to lavish praise on churches that aren't part of their own congregation. But Paul loves these people. By the way, all of Paul's letters began with this thanks to God 
for the readers, often thanks to God for the readers' faith, all of them except the book of Galatians, where Paul has to use his apostolic, apostolic authority to rebuke that particular congregation. Paul was not responsible for them, but delighted in them. It's the same spirit that Paul unveiled in the book of Philippians when he said, some preach out of Christ out of selfish ambition, but in the end, I'm simply glad that Christ is being preached. They preach Christ to make Paul's suffering more intense, but Paul said, I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned that the truth of the message of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And what a message that is to those of us who serve, that our hearts might be more concerned about the message than we are about our own agenda or our own reputation. There's one thing that'll encourage the faith of a mature Christian, and that is the faith of a new Christian who loves God and wants to grow, and that is the case here. Now notice he is thanking God for them because their faith is spreading all over the world. All roads lead to Rome, and from Rome all roads proceed. And what happens in Rome doesn't stay in Rome, for the message is sent out everywhere. These stories of life transformation that circulated in the city are now messages that are going out to the world and capturing their attention. Something is happening in Rome. And there was a church that was primarily Gentile, but was affecting the large Jewish population as well. And the stories of their faith went everywhere. I wonder how many people know of South Church in Lansing because of the stories of transformation like Rob shared today. Hearts aflame for the glory of God. So Paul thanks them, thanks God with deep passion. He's appreciative. And so should we be of every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. There's not enough gratitude among the believers of God. And here's a reason for us to get excited because of your faith. Then he says in verse nine, God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. And let's stop just there, just to take out that phrase, whom I serve in my spirit. Paul was a Pharisee and Jesus said that many of the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs in that they are beautiful on the outside. They've been scrubbed and cleaned and painted, but inside they're full of what? Dead men's bones. Coffins look very beautiful, but that betrays what is inside. The point is that true service for Christ must be of the spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, which means sincerity of heart, maybe enthusiasm as well, but sincerity of heart. And Paul says, I serve God with my spirit. But all of that was in the midst of a sentence 
God is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers. And so here's the second thing. He is constantly praying for them. Those that you are thankful for, you should be praying for. And it's hard to hold a grudge to where those that you constantly pray for. Paul says, I, I pray for you at all times. Now he calls God in as his witness because prayer is a private thing and they may not be aware of what Paul is doing. And this is no hyperbole. For the private prayer that you and I offer is always offered in the presence of God. He hears it all. He sees it all. And when we want to make sure that other people believe us, we say, God is my witness. And Paul wants them to know that his prayers for them are genuine and they are consistent, constant. Thanksgiving and prayer go together. He wants to assure them that although he may be personally unknown to them, he is interceding for them on a regular, constant basis. But don't miss this in verse 9. Paul is serving the Lord in his spirit as he preaches the gospel of his son. In verse 1, it was the gospel of God. Another clear indication that the father and the son are of equal essence, of the same nature. Now, it would be a few hundred years before this would be hammered out in a theological statement, but it was in 325, the Council of Nicaea. This exact representation, as it says in Hebrews, this exact essence stated in the council, true God, Jesus is true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Now put yourself in the place of a Jewish person who has grown up with the law of Moses and been told the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And now Jesus comes and says, he is God. This is a powerful theme if you're watching, which I think is an excellent series, The Chosen. And these Jewish believers are having a rough time looking at this person who seems very human until he does some amazing miracles. How can he be son of God? And that was happening in that day. They were reluctant until God moved in their heart and they saw Jesus Christ doing some amazing things. So Paul is making it clear that at the heartbeat of, beat of his life, it's all about Jesus Christ, seed of David, son of God, gospel of God, gospel of Jesus, and that's what he wants to proclaim. So he's praying for them constantly. Verse 10 tells us, that he is praying that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So he thanks them and he prays for them and now he deeply longs to see them. Again, they've never met. This is not a church that Paul had started. But if you think about it, those three components are so key 
in the development of a gospel relationship, the mutual appreciation, the constant support of prayer, and the longing to connect. One of the worst things of COVID-19 was the fact that we became comfortable being isolated. Not everyone, but some. And some people longing to get back were upset that the church was even separated for a period of time. And once they could come back, quickly came back, but there were others who got used to being isolated. Now maybe it's a health issue. Sometimes it's a fear issue. But in the study of the New Testament, we need to make sure that believers make vital connections. And one of the most vital connections is what takes place in worship. Now, a big group like this, it's hard to get close to people. That's why you have to have a smaller group where you can spend time together praying and spend time together sharing life. That's what the Greek word koinonia means. Paul came from a praying people. That was their history. That was their tradition. And their conviction was displayed in praying three times a day. Read Psalm 55, 17. Morning, noon, and night they would pray. And Paul followed that pattern as a Jew. Times of regular prayer throughout the day. But in the Hellenistic world, the Greek world, many people had given up on prayer. And it wasn't that important. In a world of uncertainty, in a world of fear, people would go to their gods, multiple gods, and nothing would happen. And so they gave up. No confidence in prayer. Paul is establishing the fact that this is a vital core part of our wonderful relationship. But did you notice he, say, he said, I am praying that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. We'll say a little bit more about that desire. But I want you to note that prayer is always according to to God's will. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul does not claim to know what the will of God is or impose his own will on God. He said, I'm praying, if it is God's will, that I will soon come to you. The way will be open. It's been blocked up up to this point. Everything Paul did had those initials DV behind it, the old Latin Deo Valente, if God wills. It's shocking to me if you go into, if you find an old book uh, of English in proper writing forms that teach how to write a letter, a professional letter, even in there it was understood that often people would finish the letter with a DV, if God wills. When you read the book of James, he says the same thing. Don't say today or tomorrow, we'll get up, go to such and such a city, buy, sell, and get gain. You don't know what a day will bring. You must say, if the Lord wills. And this is one of the things I love about this section of scripture. The apostle Paul doesn't know. The apostle Paul does not always get his will accomplished. 
that's great. Because in my prayers, I feel like I fail all the time. I feel like my prayers never get through. I know you don't have that experience, but I do. I'm praying for something to happen and it doesn't happen. And I've got a lot of patience. I'll wait a day or two and it still doesn't happen. And here the Apostle Paul wants to come and visit these people, but the way has not been opened. And yet he's trusting the will of God. So in verse 11, he tells us why he wants to meet with them. I long to see you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you. The Greek word is charisma, where we get the idea of a bubbling personality. That guy has a lot of charisma. Or the Pentecostal, as we sometimes call them, the gifts of the spirit, the charismata, charismatic theology. But Paul wasn't talking about giving them a gift like in 1 Corinthians 12 or even in Romans 12 as we get there because those gifts were sovereignly bestowed by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that's not Paul's job. But the gift he wants to give them has a, uh, certainly a spiritual heart to it. And it's the gift of his preaching or his teaching. He wants to come so that he can impart to them some spiritual blessing. That's the idea. He wants to be a blessing to them. So he wants to come and be with them. And then, as if he just heard himself say what he was writing, he said, boy, that really sounds self-centered. So he adds this thought, verse 12, that is, that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And he shows that his longing to be with them is not one-sided, but there's a reciprocal ministry that goes on when you and I have the privilege of getting together. I would love to sit at the feet of the Apostle Paul and hear him teach the word of God. But he would say, there's something I can get from you too. The lowest believer has something of value to share with the oldest saint and the most mature Christian around. And the mature Christians are the ones who acknowledge that. Stu Briscoe said this, and I think this is so good. He said, some ministers with apostolic uh, pretensions are careful to preserve an aura of detached sufficiency that leads people to believe that the blessing only flows one way. A pastor that says, well, frankly, I'm a gift to you, the church. Now there's a sense in which you could find that in scripture, but a pastor who has the idea that I'm a gift to you and boy, you are privileged to sit under my ministry and come here Sunday so that the blessing can flow upon you. No, no. A true believer understands that he has much ground to gain. A true believer understands that she is not where she should be in Christ. And any wonderful interaction with a true believer will bring blessing to them. I'll never forget, I was meeting with a well-known believer 
And I was so excited to hear this person say something to me and, you know, touch my heart with the insight. And the first thing they did is said, now tell me about your life. Tell me what God is doing in your life. Tell me about, and, and they were just so excited of the simple, of course, I had to think up of some things right away. I didn't have a list, but, and, you know, counted my blessings and they were so appreciative and praised God for what I deemed very simple things. And that's what's happening here. Mutual encouragement. The Greek word of this idea of mutually encouraged means synthesis. And the word encouragement, a coming together of encouragement. We should learn as well as teach. There's no believer who has zero value that they can convey and share with other people. But Paul said, I'm prevented from doing it. So in verse 10, I pray that now, at last, doesn't that sound like a little bit of frustration? (laughs) By God's will, the way will be open. And now he says in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned to come to you many times. It appears that the people of Rome, and the people in Rome were saying, um, yeah, thanks, Paul. I know you want to get together, but we never hear from you. You run into the hallway and you see someone, oh, so good to see you. Let's do lunch. Love to. Let's get together. Good. And you don't hear from them for weeks. And they don't hear from you. <laughs> But Paul said, I I, I want you to know it's not that I don't want to get together. I've been trying, but something's prevented me from doing so until now. What has prevented him? He doesn't say. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, the devil hindered me from coming. That's an interesting perspective. But do remember that the devil is servant, not master. And is only allowed to do what God by his perfect counsel and foreknowledge allows to be done. And the devil cannot touch you just like he couldn't touch Job until God said, okay. And the devil may complicate our way, but all of that must pass through the loving heart of our sovereign God. The hindrance ultimately was due to the providence of God. The DV, Deo Valente, God willing. Even in the small things of your life, like planning a journey, notice the hand of God at work. Totally dependent upon God. And that's what Paul did. Now think about it. The Roman church, not started by Paul, probably got its start right after Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 2, and this is somewhere around 30 AD. When Pentecost took place, there were groups from, I think it's 15 different regions, one of which was Rome. And those believers, probably Jewish believers or Gentiles who were proselytes, went back to their countries and shared the gospel. And that's probably how the church got started in Rome. So maybe it got started somewhere around 35 AD, which is about the time that Paul came to faith in Christ, somewhere in there. 
And so Paul's never been there, and now he's writing to them 20 years later after the church has started. And Paul says, finally, the way is open. I have been prevented up to this point. I've tried time and time again, and it hasn't worked. Again, I rejoice that Paul's plans do not always come true. But he says, that's okay. I'm resting on the sovereignty of God. I want you to know my heart. Get this, Paul doesn't make it to Rome for at least another five years after he writes this. And he gets to Rome as a prisoner. Acts 28. Man plans his way. What's the rest of it? But God directs his steps. Proverbs 16. It's okay to plan your way. You should plan your way. Just understand this. It's not going to happen exactly how you plan it. Because God Almighty is sovereign. Now we can rebel against that plan. We can get frustrated and angry. But it's best to say, thy will be done. And your will is perfect. And that's what Paul said. So in the end, he says, I want to come to you so I might impart some spiritual gift to you. And you will impart spiritual gifts to me, spiritual blessings. I've tried to come. It's in my heart to come. I've been frustrated because it hasn't worked, but at last the way is open, and he still has another five years to wait. But why do you want to come? Verse 13, Paul says, I want to come in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. So where Paul has gone and preached the gospel, as Pastor Doug read, uh, Thessalonica was a city that Paul preached in and a church started. He founded that. Those were his people. And he had a harvest among the Gentiles and he wants to come to Rome to have fruit. What, what does that mean? He wants to preach the gospel. That, verse 15, I'm eager to come and preach the gospel in Rome. Why? Because I want to see a harvest of converts. It's not the fruit he produces, it's the fruit God produces through the preaching of the word. And the most encouraging thing in my preaching life is that it doesn't depend on me. It all depends on God. Now that doesn't mean you're lazy, you've got to study, you've got to pray. But God is the one who brings the harvest, right? God is the one who brings people. And Paul's all about preaching the gospel of Christ. We'll see it in the book of Rome. He'll start out with the sin of man. And then he'll talk about the salvation of God, justification through faith. And then what it is to live a sanctified life. And then behind the scenes, the work of the sovereignty of God. And then finally, a life that is dedicated to living spiritually in every relationship in every area chapter 12 through 16 he wants to preach the gospel so he can have fruit and that's our desire here at south as well we teach the word to help you grow we share the gospel so people can come to know christ and wherever you are believer who needs to grow or unbeliever who needs to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. Years ago, there was a well-known manufacturing company who connected with a large department store and took on a 
commercial venture that was disastrous. Someone came up with the idea of making a doll in the form of Jesus. Oh no. Advertised as unbreakable, washable, and cuddly. It came with a plastic crib and straw. Appropriate biblical texts were included as well. But it did not sell. And the manager, in a panic, in a last-ditch effort to somehow promote sales, put a huge sign over the dolls on display in the store. Jesus Christ marked down 50%. Get him while you can was the last phrase. The whole enterprise doesn't interest me a bit, but I love that phrase. Get him while you can. Not a doll, but the true son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some people don't know Jesus today. And the gospel is so amazing. It's the good news of your love. It's the good news of your love coming to people like us, every human being, who is a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Touch hearts today that some people will trust you and believe and be born of the Spirit from above. Get Jesus while you can. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you for your mercy to us. Amen.